that left me now with a choice to turn in my friends or to be a part of this horrible crime. And I'm not going to be a part of this horrible crime. The only way to not be a part of the horrible crime is to discover the truth and to pursue it. Horizontal protection is the only way to ensure that all those who report wrongdoings in the interest of the public do not suffer from any sort of retaliation. They are attacking journalists. Uh, they use it to attack uh, the whistleblowers. You know, the people who should be in prison usually get promoted, and the people who blow the whistles go to prison. We have it upside down. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Counter Accounts. I am Samar Riaz and thank you for your interest in my show. In this podcast, I invite whistleblowers, investigative journalists, officials from the public, private and NGO sectors, and different researchers and scientists who have either dealt with or confronted the dominant narratives in our society. So let's hear their stories. Hello and Happy New Year. I hope each of you is off to a great start to 2024. And a special welcome to those who are joining us for the first time. In this episode, we delve into the prevailing narrative surrounding central banks and money. Money, commonly understood, serves three essential functions i.e. as a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. And all these three functions have played a crucial role in human civilization and history. While the mainstream narrative upheld by the media and institutions emphasizes the crucial role of central banks in maintaining price stability, providing liquidity, mitigating financial crises, and promoting overall financial stability, Critics argue otherwise. Counterarguments and critics highlight that central banks' actions lead to inflation, misallocation of scarce resources, and increased risk of asset bubbles, undue advantages for those in close proximity to the metaphorical money printer, and a reduction in market discipline through market interventions. To navigate through a counter-account to the mainstream narrative on central banking and money. In this episode, I'm joined by another young and talented financial researcher, educator, and writer, Sebastian Bunny, joining us all the way from British Columbia, Canada. Unlike many of his peers, Seb did not start his career in the financial world. Instead, he spent his early years as a backcountry mountain bike guide, and coach in the wild of British Columbia. However, he felt something was missing. He was curious about the world of real estate, financial markets, and the economic systems that shape our society. When the pandemic hit, he saw an opportunity to enter the financial sector, bringing his diverse experiences and unique insights. Seb has always been passionate about education, and he shifted his focus from mountain biking to macroeconomics, especially the working of our monetary system. He co-founded the education platform Looking Glass to help others learn about these topics as well. He also wrote books such as B is for Bitcoin and The Hidden Cost of Money, his latest book. 
demonstrating his commitment to spreading knowledge and financial awareness. Seb's latest book, The Hidden Cost of Money, delves into the challenges faced by individuals grappling with increasing cost of living outpacing their income. As a financial educator, he sheds light on how money shapes personal choices, global issues, and everything in between. He goes on to challenge common assumptions about money, simplifying complex concepts and revealing its impact on behavior, values, relationships, environmental degradation, social inequality, and political corruption. The book not only exposes the negative effect of money printing and fact and fractional reserve banking, but also provides insights on protecting oneself and using money for positive change. Readers are encouraged to envision and contribute to building a more equitable, sustainable, and prosperous world. Before we start, I want to remind you that the content of this episode is for information purpose only and does not constitute investment advice. Seb, it's great to have you here and thank you for joining us. Firstly, Please give us a brief overview of your personal journey and experiences that have led you to write about money, political economy, the current monetary system, and also to start a financial education organization. For sure. And um, first off, honestly, I, I truly appreciate you just having me on. I think this community never ceases to amaze me how diverse it is from people from all different backgrounds, whether they're professionals in academia, whether they're mountain bike instructors such as myself, whether they're firefighters like the blue-collar Bitcoin uh, boys down in the States. And so it, it never ceases to amaze me, just the diversity of people. So I would say money is interesting because we all have our own unique experience and relationship with money. And when I look back at, well, first off, I should say this book that we're probably going to talk about that I've spent the last kind of, I would say 10, 15 years of my life writing, but the reality is I only started writing about a year and a half ago. Um, this book that I've kind of put my heart and soul into is kind of a culmination of all of these experiences which led up to that moment that has allowed me to look at the world through my own personal lens. And I would say that there's a few really key events that helped shape that. And so first off, the, the book is called The Heading Cost of Money, and it dives into how money weaves its influence into the world around us, how it weaves its influence into our relationships, how it weaves its influence into uh, our environment, our politics, businesses, the parent-child bond. Because I think so many people forget that money is an integral part of our lives. And it, if our money is co-opted, it alters how we show up in this world. But this realization isn't something that came easy to me. It's something that after a lot of reflection and introspection, I started to realize this money is incredibly profound but it's also it can it can govern who we are and how we show up in the world and so a few i'll give you a couple kind of examples that kind of stand out to me uh there's three three kind of in particular that stand out the first one i was i was kind of raised in a standard kind of uh two-parent family until my mum and my mum and my dad ended up getting separated when i was about five years old and we really started to notice that when i look back on this I started to notice that my mum had to put a roof uh, over our heads and had to put food on the table for my two brothers and I, and that she's a single parent. When cost of living is rising, when houses are getting more expensive, when rent is getting more expensive, all of a sudden that means my mum has to commit more time to work, which means that we are seeing less time uh, and not necessarily having our emotional needs met to our, the fullest potential. And that's the same for my two brothers and I. 
And so when I reflect on this, I've started to realize, huh, when m money no longer serves the needs of the general populace, when money loses value over time, when we're experiencing inflation, all of a sudden that's actually impacting the parent-child bond. It's impacting our parents' ability to be able to spend time with their children. And I felt this acutely as a child. We grew up, there's three of us, and uh, my mom had to go out and work and put food on the table, so I supported my brothers a lot. But that also meant that I looked to my peers for acceptance and spent a lot of time with my peers as opposed to my parents. And because I was spending a lot of time with my peers, well, the peer relationship, as most people know, is quite superficial. I was always trying to look to fit in as opposed to understand who I was and individuate, which many times parents can help support that with or, or elders. And so for a lot of times, for many years throughout my life, I've gone through bouts of anxiety and minor depression because of I've questioned, like, am I on the right path? Who am I? And I would say a lot of this stems from not necessarily having my emotional needs met as a child with money being at the root of that. And then another event that kind of stands out to me is when I was about nine years old, we'd moved to New Zealand at this point. And I remember going into the toy store and seeing this scooter. And the scooter was just like, oh, I wanted it so badly. And I remember saving up for about three months for the scooter. And we went back to the toy store with my dad, my two brothers, and started walking up to the till to go pay for the scooter. And my dad said, you know what? I feel guilty that you're getting a scooter and your two brothers aren't. So my dad ended up paying for their scooters, but I had to pay for mine. And in this moment, it was almost as if in economics, we talk about this thing called the Cantillon effect. And the Cantillon effect is those closest to the monetary spigot benefit disproportionately. Well, on a microcosm within the family unit, I was seeing a cantillon effect at play. My brothers were much closer to my dad. So my dad was uh, supporting him financially, but he was not doing the same to me. And so I started to feel like this system is unfair. Like, how is this happening? Like, why is this happening? And it's when I would say it's one of those pivotal moments in life where I started questioning the systems around me. And even though it isn't obviously directly tied to the monetary system, it's like my own microcosm of money. And it started getting that, me on that questioning inquisitiveness journey. And then the final kind of story, which took up people's mention, is for a long time, for over 10 years, I was a backcountry mountain bike instructor. And I'd wanted to be a mountain bike instructor my whole bit since I was about probably nine, nine, 10 years old when I first got into mountain biking. And I used to watch all of the biggest mountain bike movies out there. I used to try and um, uh, kind of put myself out there, try to meet these individuals. And you'd see these people that I'd idolized and put on a pedestal. When I moved to where I live now and I started teaching mountain biking, all of a sudden I started to realize, huh, these people that are world-class athletes, these people that are in all the biggest movies, they, they're struggling to get ahead. They can't afford rent. They've got tons of credit card debt. And we're talking about people that should be, I would have assumed they were going to be crushing it. And so all of a sudden, again, you start to realize when our monetary system doesn't support the individual, when it doesn't allow us to get ahead and direct our time to where we see fit, all of a sudden it starts impeding our ability of how we show up in this world. And so from those kind of three events, I really started to question our monetary system. And that kind of led me into, well, especially from the mountain biking um, experience, I started to realize that if I wanted to lead my best life, I had to start investing. I had to kind of put myself out there to create some form of passive income, because if I was not creating a passive income, then that means that every single, in order to be able to make money, I had to contribute time. And so basically I was on an endless hamster wheel. I was on a hamster wheel where I continue, continually have to keep running. And so of course, when you get into investing, I started at real estate and that went into equities. And then from equities, I went into gold. And then from gold, 
that naturally led to Bitcoin. And kind of here we here we are today, and I've realized that ultimately, I think everything is downstream of money. And when you start tinkering with the money, you lead to all of these other symptoms in society. So I would argue that consumerism is a symptom of a broken monetary system. I would argue that a lot of the environmental destruction we're facing, which we'll probably talk about, is a symptom of a broken monetary system. I would argue that the the political system, the polarized political system, is a uh, again another symptom of our monetary system, and and many others. Broken parent-child bond, symptom of our monetary system. Anyway, I'll, I'll pass that over to you, Simon. So, in the last couple of years, we have witnessed an unprecedented rise in global debt, inflation, and government and central bank interventions. What is your perspective on this trend and its socioeconomic consequences? Also, let's explore how money can be used as a tool for control and governance, looking at the past couple of years' events. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how there's basically these things called the fourth factors of production. This is what makes up our economy. And for those who are unfamiliar, the four factors of production are land, labor, capital, and enterprise. And so let's just break these down for a second and it'll make sense as to why we're talking, uh, it'll make sense as to what I'm saying related back to your conversation. So land is kind of all of the resources we have. It is the, the wood, it is the oil in the ground, it is the minerals that we can extract. We've then got labor. Labor is kind of people's productive capacity. It's our ability to be able to contribute our time and energy into society and create value. And then let's skip over capital for a second and look at enterprise. Well, enterprise is our ability to, to take the resources that we extract from the ground, use the land or use the labor to be able to create innovation, to be able to advance technology, start new businesses. And then finally, we have capital. And capital is when the government may be into things that expands the monetary supply. It's our ability to be able to borrow. It's our ability to be able to use capital to stimulate whether it's our small business or the environment or the nation around us. And so what I think is really important to note it is when we want to create change in society, we can pull these four levers. These four levers are how we create change in society. But the issue is three of them are indirect and only one of them is direct. So land, labor, and enterprise are all indirect. If we want to try and create change with land, well, we've got to first go and try and find resources and in today's environment where we have a lot of regulation, it is so hard to be able to start a new mining operation or go log in a new area. Uh, so all of a sudden you realize if we want to stimulate the economy, it's going to be very hard to do that through the land lever. What about the labor lever? The problem is globally, we have an aging population. And in some countries, it's far worse than others. If we look at China, China is estimated to see that half up until 2050. And that's because of their one child policy uh, and a few other kind of measures. If we look at, say, the U.S. and Canada, the U.S. Uh, last year had its slowest population growth in the last 100 years. And in Canada, we've seen for people 60 and above, in the next 10 years, it's meant to increase 60%, while everyone below, so 60 and below, it's only meant to increase 10%. And so what you start realizing is that we've got a huge aging population. And when you've got an aging population, they become less productive because more and more people need support. And so... Well, if that's off the cards, what about enterprise? Well, the thing that's challenging with enterprise is if you want to bet on technology, you're trying to bet that someone is going to come up with something that's going to create emit, like unbelievable change in society. And so that leaves us with one lever left, and that is the capital lever. And the capital lever is the only lever that the government can basically step in, pull the lever, inject currency into the economy, 
And all of a sudden you start to see growth immediately. So over time, the government has recognized this. And this is why I would argue one of the reasons why we've seen money has slowly centralized as time has gone on because they've recognized that if we want to create change, the quickest way we can do that is through the capital lever. So we've seen from, let's say, pre-20th uh, pre century, we were predominantly on a gold standard globally. And then in 1913, we saw the introduction of the Federal Reserve. And all of a sudden, we went to gold being the currency being 40% backed by gold. And then in 1971, we saw the currency transition for, uh, from the Nixon shock, from we moved from gold into fiat. And so as time has gone on, currency has centralized more. And although that's allowed the government to intervene more easily, the flip side is that we have also experienced far more intervention, which has also resulted in inflation. It has resulted in a lot more bailouts, which has kind of impeded productive, creative destruction in society, because now you're baiting out companies that are not necessarily offering value. You're baiting out companies that are fiscally irresponsible and they're allowed to survive. So the increasing competition against companies that actually are offering value, which impedes their ability to kind of operate. So there's all of these byproducts that happen when, uh, when a government or when a central bank decides to start intervening. And I would say that this has resulted from a monetary system that is slowly centralized over time. If we were to see the inverse, which is let's just say the government, we were to separate money from state. If we were to separate money from state, then all of a sudden that changed the incentives in society. And I'll give you one example. In what everyone usually knows about the 1930s depression, the 1930s depression was one of the greatest drawdowns in society. And I think it took 25 years. If you had bought uh, equities at the height of the depression, it took 25 years to be able to regain your, your position, uh, to be able to kind of make your account whole again. Um, but what is interesting is during this period, we don't hear about in the 1920s, there was also a depression in the US. And that depression was just as deep as the 1930s depression, and it saw just as high unemployment, but it was over in nine months. And the reason why it was over in nine months is because there was no central bank intervention. After World War I, when kind of the US had gone into debt from uh, kind of expenditure, it went tried to go back onto the gold standard at the same peg, and all of a sudden the economy, because of how much debt it had, it suddenly went through this deflationary shock, and all of a sudden the economy started to collapse. But because the central bank didn't intervene, Naturally, you wiped through a lot of this fiscal irresponsibility. If you were a company that had borrowed beyond its means and you could not service your debt levels, all of a sudden you would see you'd no longer be able to, uh, you'd no longer be able to operate and you would kind of like wither away and someone who was offering value would rise up. And so what is fascinating is that when you actually step back and you stop intervening, you allow natural irresponsibility and you allow value creation to rise up. And so I think it is, profound because a lot of people don't necessarily talk about that. And I think it's you can look at it the same way as in health. When it comes to health, if you start to get a sore stomach or you start to get a, a slight illness, if you treat it early and you treat it more holistically, so you look at, okay, what is my environment? Why is this happening? If you try and change your diet or exercise as a routine, um, you're, you've got a far greater chance of moving through this with minimal change. Whereas when you've got a sore stomach and all of a sudden you just take some form of uh, interventionistic medication to mask the symptom, it's the same thing as hearing a knock on your car when you're driving along and just turning up the radio. All you're doing is you're ignoring the symptom. You're ignoring the root cause and you're just trying to mask the symptom. So I think the way I look at things is intervention is always going to create byproducts. And so it's far it's far more important to look at things more holistically uh, than it is to try and intervene. And one of the byproducts we're seeing of monetary intervention 
is a controlling system. We're seeing that as governments start to uh, realize the power they have through the currency, as governments start to realize how much debt they have and how much they've got to deal with, they're continually having to intervene with greater and greater and greater ferocity in order to be able to uh, quell the, the, the misallocated capital, a lot of the symptoms we're seeing in society. And I'll give one more quick example, uh, and then I'll stop rambling, which is in Canada, since the pandemic, we have seen our debt to GDP uh, grow to 440%. So 440%, so debt is 4.4 times bigger than GDP. That is mind-blowing. Now, if you think about that debt, that debt is household debt, that is corporate debt, that is government debt. And from that, all of that debt has an interest rate. People have to borrow. Someone's going to be, someone wants to be rewarded for lending that capital. So that interest rate on, if we were to say a conservative estimate, is probably around 3%. And so if we know that debt is 4.4 times bigger than GDP, and the interest rate on that debt is 3%, what is 4.4 times 3? And we get 13.2%. That means that GDP would have to grow by 13.2% just to be able to service the interest payments on this debt. Well, if we actually look at Canada's GDP growth, Canada's GDP growth over the last 100 years has averaged something like 0.61%. So we are far from being able to service these debt levels, which means we can expect the government is going to continually intervene with greater and greater, uh, whether it's monetary supply, uh, suppressed interest rates, in order to be able to try and support their debt habit. So I would say that this is going to create a lot of other byproducts, wealth inequality, again, increased consumerism because our money is worth less, you name it, because of this intervention, as opposed to just trying to treat the root cause of the problem. So what's the solution? I understand that one of the solutions you discuss is the decentralization of money and the use of Bitcoin. So could you explain what Bitcoin is and how would you convince, let's say, my grandma that it is the solution to our current money-related problems? Because it sounds quite complicated, right? It's, so to be utterly honest, it's one of those things when you try to, for those that are not familiar with Bitcoin, it's called orange pilling, which is given that the kind of Bitcoin is always branded in orange, right? The orange pill is that you have gone down the rabbit hole and now you see Bitcoin through this different lens where you feel as if it can actually create change and fix many of the issues that we see in society. And I would say orange pilling is one of the hardest things to do because it's a very personal journey. And the first thing I would say is, it's really hard to orange pill a larger audience. It's much easier to pill an individual because you've got to understand what their pain points are. Because Bitcoin is fascinating in that, because if you actually look at the white paper, the white paper is the initial uh, the initial paper that kind of disclosed what this thing, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer currency was. It's only, I think it's something like 3,500 characters long. It is a tiny, tiny little document. But because it is simple, what that means is that it maps onto so many different people's lives, whether you are pro-intervention, whether you're against intervention, whether you're democratic, whether you're republic, whether you're religious, whether you're not, like Bitcoin is really fascinating because it supports many different people from all different backgrounds. And so to answer your question, what is Bitcoin? And the way I see Bitcoin is it is the first time ever in history that we have a monetary system that can operate separate from state and it is trustless. We do not need trust to be able to use it. So we're not relying on third parties. It is permissionless. We do not permission to be able to transact, which is incredibly important because as we've seen during, say, Canada and the the pandemic, we saw the trucker rallies. And the trucker rallies, just because some uh, protesters uh, did not align with Trudeau's government, Trudeau ended up banning their, freezing their bank accounts, 
and preventing them from sending funds. And so that means that we need permission to be able to send our funds to our bank. In Bitcoin, we no longer need permission. It's a permissionless system. And on top of that, the most important attribute of Bitcoin that I believe is that it's decentralized. So there's no single entity that controls Bitcoin. And because there's no single entity that controls Bitcoin, they can't just expand the monetary supply at will. Bitcoin has got 21 million potential coins, and that is the most there will ever be. So if you own, let's say, one of 21 million Bitcoins right now, you can be confident that in 100 years, you will still own one of 21 million, which is not the same for our current system. If you own $1 of our current system, let's say in Canada here, I don't know what the monetary supply is right now, but let's just say it's, I don't know, 10 trillion Canadian dollars. In 100 years, I'd be willing to bet that if the Canadian dollar still exists, there's going to be well over a few quadrillion dollars because of how much debt we have and because the government has to continually intervene and expand the monetary supply. So that means that over time, your $1 of the 1 quadrillion or $1 of, one ten, uh, of 10 trillion is going to slowly use value. It's going to be a smaller piece of the pie, which means your purchasing power is going to decline. And another way to put it that I, I love is there's a guy called Michael Saylor. And Michael Saylor kind of gives money as the analogy of a battery. He's like, if you go down to the store or and you go and buy AAA batteries to be able to service your uh, your um, TV remote, you name it, around the house, then if you go and put those batteries in the cupboard and you come back a year later, you don't want that battery to be depleted. You want to be able to use that battery because you pay for the energy in that battery. Well, it's the same thing with money. When we go and expend our time and energy to be able to earn a wage, if we don't spend that money immediately, we, we want to be confident that when we come back in a year or two and we want to spend that money, that we're going to be able to spend that money and purchase the same amount of goods and services or more uh, than the day we earn that money. And so I think this is so important to be able to have a monetary system that allows us to transact permissionlessly. We shouldn't need permission to be able to spend our money, transact trustlessly. We shouldn't have to rely on intermediaries to be able to move our money and a decentralized system whereby we shouldn't have to rely on any single entity who's controlling the monetary system. And I say this because... When you look at our political system, we can vote for someone who is phenomenal. We can vote for someone who goes and creates immense, like favorable change for society. But if the next person who gets into power is the opposition and doesn't agree with their change, they can go and revert that change immediately. And so this is where I believe that if we can have a system that is a lot more stable, that is not prone to change, that is decentralized and is distributed globally, then all of a sudden what that does is it creates a, a foundation for people to put their savings into. And that means that capital is going to start flowing to where value is created, as opposed to uh, more authoritarian, more controlling systems, devaluing the currency to be able to use your capital where they see fit. And so that's just where I believe separating money from state realigns the incentives in society, which is, it sounds big, it sounds uh, intimidating, but I truly believe it. And I think that Bitcoin for the first time in history, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples and I'll pass back over. But Bitcoin for the first time in history allows capital to flow to where value is being created. And so what is phenomenal about Bitcoin is because it is digital in nature, you can store 12 words in your head and that will hold all of your Bitcoin. Now, if you live, let's just say you live in uh, uh, the Middle East under some authoritarian regime and you're trying to flee, it's really hard if you have a house there or you have traditional um, assets or you even have physical objects that are, are of value to you. To be able to flee is next to impossible. And so it's really hard to move capital outside of borders. Well, Bitcoin for the first time in history dematerializes borders because you can hold wealth in your head. You can walk across a border, start naked if you want to, 
and you can store all of that wealth in your head. And so all of a sudden, what that does is it allows capital to start flowing to where value is being created. If you're a nation that actually offers value and people want to start moving to your country, you're going to see capital move into that country, which is going to help you grow your economy. It's going to help uh, boost innovation. It's going to help build community. Uh, and capital is going to start moving away from countries which are not offering value. Whereas at the moment, governments can essentially lock you in because the fact that we have physical borders and they can increase taxation on your property. They can start to freeze assets, digital, any, any form of traditional digital assets. They can seize any physical assets. And so I think it's, it's phenomenal when you start looking at Bitcoin because it starts changing how people have to act. And the reason why it realigns incentives is because if you're a government and you can no longer seize an asset by force, well, then the only way to obtain that asset is to offer value. And so if you have to offer value, well, then now you have to listen to your populace. That's not the case in our current system. If we have a government that controls the monetary printer, all of a sudden they can simply print to fund operations without actually listening to the populace, even though it is still the populace that is paying. So let's discuss some of the concerns or criticisms about Bitcoin. The two main ones that I have come across include its volatility, that you know it can go from 60,000 euros a coin to almost 16,000 euros. I think it was at the end of 2022, if I remember correctly. And the second one is its association and use in illegal and illicit financial activities. So how do you respond to these criticisms? So first off, I would say, so there's actually, there's a Bitcoin podcast called Blue Collar, uh, the Blue Collar podcast, and it's two firefighters. And we actually did a whole nine part series, my partner Daz and I, uh, and we discuss uh, Bitcoin from start to finish. But one of the episodes, and I think it's episode nine or eight, we actually discussed why Bitcoin would fail. And because if you ever take a book, uh, a page out of Warren Buffett's book, he always talks about if you're ever investing in something, you need to know the inversion as to why you would not invest in that thing. But arguably more intimately than, than why you're investing in that thing. So I'm very much of the opinion that we should research both sides and deeply understand both sides. And the points you bring up are important because I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand Bitcoin uh, to the extent to which they can make an informed decision as to why volatility is not necessarily a bad thing or why volatility is even happening. And so let me explain. So the first one, volatility. When it comes to volatility, it's First and foremost, it's important to note that volatility is actually a product of the US dollar system, not the Bitcoin system. Because if people are moving from the US dollar into Bitcoin, it is because they're trying to hedge inflation in the US dollar. Not Bitcoin is this thing that's just going up and down in price. And the, the challenge with the current monetary paradigm is that most assets are basically the tail being wagged by the dog and the dog is the central bank. If the central bank decides to tighten monetary policy, then all of a sudden there's going to be less capital. So people are going to flood from assets back into the dollars. So the assets are going to fall. And all of a sudden, if the, uh, if the, the central bank decides to ease monetary policy, print dollars, uh, uh, make capital more favorable again by uh, suppressing interest rents, all of a sudden more capital floods into the economy and asset prices rise. And so we no longer have a free market where value, uh, capital is flowing to where value is being created. Instead, we have a market whereby capital is moving in and out of assets based upon whether the central bank is tightening or easing monetary policy. And that is not a market that we should be living in. Um, I think that when it comes to Bitcoin, we've got 
this aspect, which is capital floods in and out as central banks tighten these monetary policy. But then on top of that, we have another aspect, which is we have adoption. A lot of these other assets like real estate or equities or gold, or a lot of them are saturated because they've been around for so long, 50, 100, 200, or in the case of real estate, thousands, millions of years. All of a sudden, these assets are basically, they've seen maximum capital flows into these assets unless the monetary system changes. And so at the moment, you're only going to see asset prices rise when the government eases monetary policy, and you're only going to see asset prices fall when government um, tightens monetary policy. Whereas with Bitcoin, not only do we have the central bank easing a tightening, we also have adoption. And adoption means that because a lot of people don't know about Bitcoin yet and is becoming more widely known, it has the capacity to uh, basically grab at or see capital flows from traditional assets moving into Bitcoin. And now that means that Bitcoin, given the size of it, is going to see immense potential growth. So I'll give you an example. If we look at equities, equities or stocks, they've got about, I think it's something like $200 trillion worth of capital stored in equities globally. If we look at real estate, real estate has got $300 trillion of capital stored in real estate globally. If we look at bonds, it's something like, uh, if I remember correctly, it's something like four or $500 trillion stored in bonds, which basically is debt globally. And then you look at gold and gold is around 20 trillion. So we're looking at unbelievable sums of capital in these traditional investments. When we look at Bitcoin, the last time I checked, there's about like six, seven hundred billion dollars, not even one trillion dollars. So when you start looking at Bitcoin and you then see the size of the traditional asset market, if Bitcoin was even to see one percent of those capital flows, which let's just say they were, let's just say the total asset value of bonds, real estate and equities was say one quadrillion dollars or a thousand trillion dollars, what you would realize is that even just seeing one percent capital flow, ten trillion dollars, $10 trillion into an asset that's only worth $600 billion. That's, what is that? That's nearly 20 times increase in, in the value of Bitcoin. And so this is why Bitcoin is volatile, because there's a lot of people that are holding traditional assets that are realizing the government can seize this asset if they want to. We've seen this with the truck rally. We've seen this in Greece in 2014, whereby when Greece started to default uh, as a nation, it froze bank accounts and seized 50% of our customers' capital. And so you start to realize people don't want to hold an asset that they feel is this in 10 years time, am I still going to be, is it still going to be worth the same amount or am I even going to be owning it or it's the government frozen it? And so we're seeing a lot of capital flood from traditional assets into Bitcoin, which is what makes it volatile as well. And that is adoption. As Bitcoin becomes, as we see greater adoption through Bitcoin, we're going to see its price start to move as well. And so volatility is not a bad thing. Volatility is basically just highlighting that we have a broken traditional monetary system and people are trying to hedge and capital is moving in and out of Bitcoin based upon what the central bank is doing. And secondly, it is also highlighting that Bitcoin is an asset that has got demand and it offers utility outside of uh, traditional assets. And that's why we're seeing capital move from traditional assets into Bitcoin. And then so to your next point with Bitcoin kind of being used for illicit activity, I think it's really important to note that when it comes to currencies, the US dollar sees far greater, even as a proportion of total dollars in circulation, far greater illicit activity than Bitcoin. There's actually a, if I remember correctly, there's a ex-director of the CIA who decided we're going to prove once and for all that Bitcoin was used for illicit activity. So he basically did a bunch of research into Bitcoin's transactions. And what is fascinating about Bitcoin is that it's not anonymous. 
it is pseudo-anonymous, which basically means that every single transaction that has ever happened on Bitcoin is visible to everyone. The challenge is we just don't know who the person is behind that transaction because it is, instead of it saying Joe blogs, it's instead it just shows a hash of 64 characters. And so what is interesting is that if you start looking at every single transaction that happens, you can start to see where capital is flowing to and you can get an idea about how many illicit activities or the percentage of illicit activities that are happening on Bitcoin. And when the CIA director did this analysis, he came to the conclusion that in the last four or five years, we've seen something like 0.64% of transactions in Bitcoin are used for illicit purposes, as opposed to it's something like 4% with the US dollar. The US dollar is the ultimate uh, illicit activity for the, the form of money to be able to use for illicit activities because cash is totally untraceable. Cash is anonymous. You can Once you transact with someone, there's no record of that transaction ever taking place. With Bitcoin, if you decide to kind of deal drugs on Bitcoin, well, you're going to have a record of your transaction for the rest of future, for the rest of history. So I think it's really important to know that a lot of people use these arguments against Bitcoin without truly understanding them. And the other argument that I will kind of add to, because you'd, you'd ask like, what other ways do people tend to attack Bitcoin? And that is Bitcoin uses energy. And I think this is a really important argument to kind of discuss because a lot of people misunderstand what energy usage really means. And first off, if something has a price, then it shows that someone values it. It doesn't matter what you believe. You don't have to believe that Bitcoin offers value. But we cannot deny that if Bitcoin has a price, then someone believes it does have value because they've decided to direct their capital towards that thing. And the reality is that value is subjective. If someone was to give me a down jacket and I was to live in Siberia, that down jacket is probably worth quite a bit of money because it's going to keep me warm. But if I live in the Sahara Desert, that down jacket is all of a sudden it's useless. I have no use for that down jacket. And so our environment dictates whether we find something valuable. And this is why many people who are close to the monetary spigot who benefit disproportionately from our current monetary system, they don't see bit value in Bitcoin. But when we look at, say, um, people living in third world countries, they've got authoritarian regimes and are facing hyperinflation, they see Bitcoin as valuable because it offers immense utility to them. And so, yes, Bitcoin consumes energy, but so too does everything else in society. If we want to go for a run, we have to eat some form of uh, protein, we have to eat some form of fat that has come from the ground that has been consumed by sun or sunlight has kind of produced that food. Energy is in everything. And the next thing to note is that although Bitcoin does consume energy, most of the energy at which Bitcoin consumes in many times is stranded. It's energy that no one else has the capacity to use. And this, this is, I think, one of the most profound points of Bitcoin. And let me explain for a second before I lose you, because some people get lost in this. But Bitcoin, for the first time ever in history, allows us to capitalize on energy directly. And what do I mean by that? Let's just say you own a dam. You own this big hydro dam, and your local community only uses 40% of the capacity of that dam. Well, the remaining 60%, it's not like that energy can be stored in batteries. We have very limited battery capacity to store that energy. So that energy is just being wasted. It's stranded energy. There's no buyer for that energy. Now, you could set up a steel-like uh, refinery in that town, and that steel refinery could start using that, that, uh, um, that energy. But if no one is buying the steel from that steel refinery, it doesn't matter. That steel refinery is not going to work. And so we have, we've never had a way to be able to use energy directly and convert it into money or capital. Bitcoin, for the first time in history, we can run a Bitcoin miner, we can have the input, which is energy, and we have the output, which is Bitcoin, which is capital. And so 
all of a sudden, if you were this dam that had 60% of your energy stranded, you had no buyer for that energy, you can then run Bitcoin miners and you can capitalize on the stranded energy. You can turn that into money, which can then end up lowering the cost of energy for the rest of that, uh, that, that um, community. And um, not only that, but this is phenomenal for systems whereby if we want to transition to renewable energies like wind and solar, we're starting to realize that when it comes to solar, when it comes to wind, as we know, they're intermittent. If the sun goes out or we're stuck behind clouds or it's nighttime, we're not generating any energy from solar. Or when the wind stops, we're not generating any wind by energy from wind. And so we have to build out far more capacity in wind and solar than we need because of the potential for this intermittent power. And that means that if we're building out far more capacity than we need in the hopes that we're going to get just enough sunlight or just enough wind, then where does all this excess energy go? Well, we're not using it. We're just wasting it. So Bitcoin ends up allowing us to capitalize on all of this energy that we otherwise would not be using and allows us to lower the costs for everyone else. It allows us to be able to subsidize our current energy system. So I think Bitcoin is massively misunderstood, especially when it comes to the energy side of things. It's misunderstood when it comes to volatility. It's misunderstood when it comes to uh, illicit activity. And there's countless others. But I think it's really important just to touch on a couple of those. So let's discuss the education organization you started. What is its mission and what motivated you to establish it? Sure. So I was, um, I was a man of my constructive, as I mentioned, for over a decade. Absolutely loved it. And I really enjoy trying to distill down complex subjects into their simplest form so that people can start to grasp them. And what I started to realize when I was looking at the financial world through this kind of same lens is that there's very little content that speaks to the layperson. There's very little content that speaks to the individual. You may not understand... Why are we experiencing inflation? Why, are, why is cost of living constantly rising? And so this is where we founded Looking Glass Education as a way to be able to distill and break down our macroeconomic environment, financial literacy, and Bitcoin for the layperson so they can start to understand why they're experiencing many of the issues they are. Why is it getting harder for me to spend time with my kids because my cost of living is rising? Why is the political side of things so polarized today? Why am I experiencing, why globally are we experiencing environmental destruction and consumerism? And so we've really tried to break down a lot of these subjects for the layperson so they can start to be able to show up in this world more authentically, more holistically, and understand the world around them. And so Looking Glass Education is basically just a, it's a free platform. Uh, nearly all of our content is free on there. And we have a mixture of courses, long form courses that last from an hour to three hours. Uh, and then we also have a bunch of deep dives, which are kind of long form articles. And one of the biggest things we try to do is make sure that all our content is timeless. We want to make sure that if you came back to this content in five years' time, it's still relevant. So we don't tend to post anything about news um, and, and whatnot. And um, from there, if you want to check us out, you can just go to lookingglasseducation.com. Um, and then a lot of the ideas that we've actually just discussed uh, right now, you can find on the website. But it's, uh, I've just recently written this book, The Heading Cost of Money. And you can find, if you go on Looking Glass, you can find that book there. And we dive into a lot of this. It's, how our money weaves its influence into society, how it impacts how we show up in the world. And uh, I discuss kind of our traditional financial system and then what options we have available to us. So I dive into gold, I dive into central bank and digital currencies, and then I dive into Bitcoin, which I personally believe uh, has the potential to change and realign a lot of the incentives in society. So for my last question, which I always like to ask when discussing heavy topics, do you see any hope? It's interesting. There's a little saying that I say. I said at the end of the book, Whenever, if someone wants me to sign or autograph a book, I always say it, in the, uh, it when, I, when I autograph a book, and it's the future is bright. And if I'm to be 100% honest, 
I was, I was definitely hesitant and I was depressed going into the pandemic because although I was interested in Bitcoin at the time, I was only looking at it as a speculative asset as most people and then they enter into Bitcoin. But as I started digging deeper, I started to realize this is a solution to a lot of the issues we're facing. And it's the first time in my life that I started to have hope because prior to that, I was working as a man bike instructor for 25 bucks an hour. And when you're working as a man bike instructor for 25 bucks an hour and you're working uh, 10 hour days, six, seven days a week, and you were seeing house prices where I live here in, in Whistler in British Columbia, I live in a desirable location. And I'm renting a basement suite, but the average house price is four and a half million dollars. It's completely, totally unobtainable for the average individual. And so it leads to this, I can, what it leads to nihilism. And you can understand why the millennial generation has more nihilistic views and tendencies than any other generation in history. When you look at even like the, the population, the, the, the baby boomers at the average age of 30 own 35% of the real estate market. The millennial generation, which is the average age of 30 right now only holds two to three percent of the, the housing market so you start to realize society is getting so hard and bitcoin is the first time ever in history that we've got a money that has the capacity to separate money from state and realign the incentives in society and so bitcoin is the first time in history what well, the first time in my life that i believe we do have hope we do have a system that can realign the incentives towards value creation that allows the government to what well, puts pressure on the government to offer value back to society and compete in a free market just like any other business. Uh, we've never had that before, which has allowed these controlling structures to rise up. So I truly, truly do have hope because I think Bitcoin empowers the individual. It gives us a way to transact permissionlessly, trustlessly, uh, in a decentralized manner. And that alone, I think, can realign a lot of the issues we have in, in, in society. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Seb. I really appreciate your time. And I hope to have you again sometime in future um, and wish you all the best in your future endeavors. It was lovely talking to you. Thanks, Osama. And I really appreciate it. And again, I really appreciate you sharing your views and having me on. Brilliant. Thank you. So folks, that was my conversation with Sebastian Bunny, a passionate and talented financial educator, writer, and researcher. I highly recommend Seb's latest book, The Hidden Cost of Money, to learn more about the issues that we've discussed here and, and many other things. Next time, I will speak to you with another guest. And don't forget to follow, share and rate the show. And bye for now.